0: I am feeling somewhat like what Chuck so quaintly describes as the uh, one-legged kickboxer this morning. When a preacher's voice goes, (laughs) he is in rough shape. I feel awfully frustrated because it seems that my mind and my tongue just get completely out of sync at a time like this. Bob, do you know what I'm talking about? You've never had that happen to you. But I take consolation in the fact that Paul said when he came to Corinth that he didn't come with persuasive words or eloquent speech. He did not rely on his ability to speak and to convince, but he relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal. So I trust as we open the Word of God this morning, you pray for me that I might be able to clearly and precisely convey to you what we will find herein, in the 21st chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. Rusty, I'm going to ask you if you would bring me a glass of water. That might help that halfway through. 1 Samuel chapter 21. <coughs> then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what is there present? And the priest answered David and said, "There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days. Since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belongeth to Saul. And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor any weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them, and feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see, the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house?" We have been studying for the last few weeks the life of David. We, in our first session, saw the events when Samuel went down to Bethlehem, and there he anointed the youngest son of Jesse, the eighth son, David, as the future king of Israel. Because of Saul's disobedience, God would take the kingdom away from Saul, and he would give it to David. Then we looked at David's memorable encounter with the giant Goliath. It was, of course, that incident that gave David renown in the kingdom of Israel. He goes to live with Saul. He, uh, in fact, is given the, the king's daughter to be his wife. So it seems that David is sort of the bright, up-and-coming young, young star on the horizon. <clears throat> but last week we saw that things eventually would go sour. Saul becomes incensed with a jealousy towards David as he hears the maidens of Israel ascribe the fact that though Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands, we begin to see the flaws come out, these deep-seated, deep-rooted flaws in the character of King Saul. His his, uh, self-centeredness to where he simply cannot stand to see someone else get the credit that he thinks ought to belong unto himself. And so it is not long before Saul is possessed of an evil spirit from the Lord, depressed, down, moody, and they call for David to come in and pick a little for him. That's literally what he did, came in and strummed on a guitar-like instrument. But as Saul sat there and watched David, he became more angry till he took a spear and threw it at him, not once, but on two occasions, trying to run him through. We remember the fact that Jonathan, through it all, is an amazing man. His loyalty towards David, through all of this, is so striking in its contrast to King Saul and his hatred of David. Jonathan keeps asking his father, what has he done? Why are you acting this way? Why are you treating this man who has gone out and won a great victory for you and is so loyal to you? Why are you treating him like this? And finally, you remember Saul becomes so incensed at his own son. And he says, don't you understand? The kingdom will not be secure for you as long as this guy lives. But his, Jonathan will have no part of that. Saul takes a spear and throws it at his own son. I'm doing this for you, son. Even if I have to kill you, I'm doing this for you. So you get the idea. Here is a man that is just raging with hatred and envy and jealousy towards David. David. And so we ended last week with the fact that David must now flee for his life. He is a refugee, a fugitive, running for his life from the army of King Saul. Well, we find here in our text that David goes first to the little village of Nob. Nob was a very inconsequential place in Israel, a very small place. It was where apparently at this time the tabernacle was erected. We understand the tabernacle was at Gibeon for a while. It was up at Shiloh. And apparently at this point in time, it is here at Nob because this is where the priests are. Ahimelech is the priest, apparently the high priest in this day. And we find that David goes to Ahimelech and asks him, says, you know, we need something to eat. Now, we have not been told prior to this that David has some other people with him. There are a few other young men who are fleeing with David. We would surmise that because he asked for five loaves of bread, that we might assume that there were five men that were fleeing. But David and a few others are on the run. And so he asked Ahimelech, do you have any bread here? Anything you can give us. Now you have to understand that for three days they've been on the run. They've had nothing to eat. And so this is a very desperate situation. Well, Ahimelech is of course a little bit concerned why is David, and he knows of David, he's the king's son-in-law, why is he coming to me in this kind of condition, in this very suspicious and mysterious circumstances? Well, David begins to explain. He says, Saul has sent me on an errand. He's got me on a secret mission. I can't tell anybody what it's about, but uh, we're doing Saul's business, and so I need something to eat for me and for my men. Well, That sounds reasonable to a Himalek. He says, I tell you what, I'd like to help you out, but we just don't have any bread here. We have no common bread. Here you begin to understand the Bible distinction between that which is holy and that which is common. The word holy in its root is the idea of being separated, separated from something unto something, to be set apart to something, to a particular use. They had bread, but that bread was holy bread. It was not common bread. Common, meaning that it could be eaten by a common man. The bread that you would bake in your oven, for instance, or buy down at the store. This is holy bread. Well, what's the difference between common bread and holy bread? You know, do you put some real... Fancy ingredients in the holy bread? No, no, it wasn't that. It was the fact that holy bread was that which had been sanctified, set apart to God. You can go back into the law, and you'll find that when God gives Moses direction for building the tabernacle, That you recall, there was that tent-like building, the structure called the tabernacle, and that structure was divided into two parts. The holy place out in the front, and then that inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies, where the ark was kept. Out front, in the first room that you came into, there were three pieces of furniture, all made out of gold. One was a golden candlestick with the arms. You've seen the, what is it, the Jewish menorah? Is that what it's called? I believe that's the term for that seven-branched candlestick. That was there. In the center of the room, there was this golden altar. Not an altar like outside where the sacrifices were burned, but this was an altar of incense. It was where incense was to be burned, right before the veil that separated these two rooms. And then over to one side, there was also a golden table. And on that table, the priests were commanded each week to put twelve loaves of bread. You were to lay these loaves of bread out on that table every week. And only the priests were to eat that bread. We really don't know for sure whether they ate it uh, by course through the, through the week or whether when they replaced it with the new loaves at the end of the week, whether they ate the bread. But it was only for the priests to eat. It was called showbread. Showbread. It was to be laid out, as it were, before the Lord. Now, what Ahimelech is describing here is that the only bread that we've got in this place is the showbread that's in there in the tabernacle, that which is laid out on this golden table before God, that which Moses commanded that only the priests should eat. So, David, I'd like to help you out, but you see, we just don't have any bread except this bread. But David begins to what well, I do not want to use argue, but reason with Ahimelech and basically asserting that their needs come before this ceremonial observation of the law of Moses. Now, Ahimelech is concerned that the vessels of the young men are holy. We'll not plow very deeply into this for obvious reasons, but let me just remind you that any issue from man's body was considered that which made a man unclean. Now, there's a volume of teaching right in that. Anything that comes from man is unclean. Any issue at all. And so he asks, have these men kept, been kept from women? Oh, David says, yes, we have. I hadn't been around women for three days. We've been on the run, been on the go. And so he asked for the showbread, and Ahimelech gives it to him. David then asks for a weapon. You got any spears? got any swords? Ahimelech says, well, we've just got one. They had wrapped up in a cloth back there behind the ephod that sword with which David had severed the head of Goliath back there when he slew him at the Valley of Elah. It was sort of like a relic, a national relic, so to speak, as we would keep in our Smithsonian Museum. Here was this sword, the the memorabilia, if you will, of this great triumph of David over the Philistine. Oh, we've got that one. David says, that's a good one. David had had a little bit of experience with that sword. He knew how it worked. That's a good one. I'll take it. So we see that David is supplied with bread and with a weapon, the sword of Goliath. And then amazingly, I, I find this rather strange. I trust that you would, too. Where does he flee from here, from Nob? He flees to Gath. Now, you that were here last Wednesday night, remember that we did a study of the Philistines, that people that settled over there on the coastline of Israel, south and west of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. We talked about where they came from. Their name means immigrant, which indicates that they weren't there all the time. They came into that area from somewhere else, most likely from the island of Crete, we learn. But uh, there were five principal cities of the Philistines. You'll sometimes see them speak in the scripture of the five lords of the Philistines and these five lords or kings were kings over these five cities. Can you name them? We've already given you a head start here. One of them is Gath. They were called the Gittites from Gath. What were the others? My, how soon we forget. What's that? I'm sorry? Edom? No. Good, good guess, but no. Well, there were five Philistine cities. Two of them started with a G. Gath. And what's in the news today that they're fighting over, over in Israel? The Gaza Strip. Gath and Gaza. Then two of them start with an A. Ashdod. I'm giving you all kinds of hints here. Ashdod and Ashkelon. And then another Philistine city was Ekron. You've got a map. You can go back there and look. And you'll see that all those five cities, the principal cities of the Philistines, were all in a little circle. Or actually, they're all sort of in a line up and down the seacoast of the Mediterranean Sea to the south and west. Now, those were the five principal Philistine cities. David flees down to the land of the Philistines. He flees to the city of Gath, who has a king over that city, one of these five Philistine lords they are spoken of in Scripture, whose name is Achish. Does it not seem to you a little strange that David would flee to Gath? It does to me because do you remember where Goliath was from? He is called Goliath of Gath. He is identified in Scripture as one of the sons, one of five sons, born to the giant of Gath. So David is fleeing right to the city from whence his opponent came in his most memorable victory. It's sort of like Saddam Hussein fleeing for refuge to the United States. You say, why in the world would he make such an attempt? Why would he go there of all places? And I could only come up with one idea. was the only alternative he had. It was the only place that he could get away from Saul. The only place that Saul would not be free to come after him and to hunt him down. It's sort of like the old uh, bad news and good news, those jokes. It's it's like the it's it's just the only alternative you've got. Your your chances are slim and none. It reminds me of those Samaritan lepers. They're caught out in the middle between the city of Samaria under siege. The people starving to death inside the wall, and here's the Syrian army out here with its with its uh, soldiers and tents all around the city. And here these poor Samaritan lepers are sort of caught in no man's land right there in the middle. And one of them finally wakes up one morning and says, "You know, I know what we need to do." Let's go out and throw ourselves on the mercy of the Syrians. Let's go surrender. And one of them said, are you a nut? Are you a fool? Don't you know what the Syrians are probably going to do? They're probably going to kill us. And the man said, think of it this way. If we go inside the city, we're surely going to die. If we stay here, we're surely going to die. If we go out there, we're probably going to die, but it's the only avenue open to us. And so David, no doubt reasoning something like that, says, "You know, our chances are slim to none down there in the land of the Philistines, but there's zilch right here in Israel." And so David flees down to Gath to King Achish. It seems that perhaps he thought they would know who he was. Wrong. Notice they've heard, they've heard about David. The servants of Achish come to him and say, wait a minute, this guy, we, we've heard something about him. Is this not, and notice what they say, is not this David the king of the land? Do you not grasp by this time that the fact that Samuel went down to Bethlehem and there anointed this eighth son of Jesse, that word, though it was done in secrecy there, has now gotten out so that even the Philistines have heard about this fellow. They know that this guy is ordained and anointed of God to be the next king of Israel. And they say, isn't this guy the fellow that the maidens of Israel sang about, made up their songs, saying, Saul slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And so very rightly, David says, oops, it's all over now. Only one thing to do. He begins to drool. He begins to claw at the door, scratch at the gate, and he plays a madman. Now for some of you youngsters, when they called a man mad, they weren't talking about him being angry. They were talking about him being crazy. He begins to feign insanity. He scratches at the door, he claws at the gate, he lets the spittle run down his beard. And Oakish is just thoroughly disgusted with him. He says, Have you brought this fellow to me? Have you brought a madman, a crazy man? Do I have need of a crazy man? You want me to let this fellow in, in my house? It spit all over everything grueling down his beard. I don't want this guy in my house. So he drove him away. All right, let that sink in. What in the world does all of this mean? Is this just some biblical history that might be uh, helpful to know the next time you play a game of Bible trivia? Is that about the worth of this? What in the world is God teaching us in these historical narratives? Let's first think about David's encounter with the priest Ahimelech there at Nob when he takes the showbread and eats it. Again, we might just read that, shrug our shoulders, and say, well, you know, it's one of those just interesting things in Scripture, and go on. Were it not for the fact that our Lord quotes, recalls that very event in the New Testament and uses it to buttress his argument against the Pharisees. Would you turn with me over to the book of Matthew this morning? Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1. While you're turning, I'm going to take another sip. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the cornfields, through the corn or grain fields, we would say. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungry, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priest in the temple profaned the temple and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day." Christ here is recalling and and bringing to their attention this very obscure thing we've been talking about this morning. It was the way of the Pharisees, the rabbis in general, to argue uh, from Scripture and, and especially to when they would like to bring two opposing concepts into collision and then ask the question which one is to take precedent over the other. You may remember there was another time when Jesus accuses them of denying and refusing the commandment of God by their own human tradition in the matter of declaring their possessions Corbin. They said that if a man declared that his possessions were Corbin, that is, dedicated to the temple when he dies, he could use them, but he couldn't relieve his poor parents in their elderly age with those possessions because they've been dedicated to the temple. Jesus accuses them, in that case, of setting their own human tradition against and over the very law of God. The law says, honor your father and your mother, but you, according to your tradition, says it takes precedence over that. Now, that's typically the way they would argue. The rabbis among themselves, I think I've told you some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of some of the findings there of the Essenes and their bitter arguments with the Pharisees over matters of whether this renders you clean or unclean. I shared with you one time before, if, if you have an unclean pot and you have water in it, is the water clean or unclean? Hmm? You got an unclean pot, you put clean water in it. Unclean. Anything that comes into contact With that which is unclean is unclean. Now, if you have a clean pot, you can put clean water in it and the water stays clean. Okay? All right. What if you pour water from that unclean pot with the unclean water into a clean pot? What happens to the clean pot? It becomes unclean because the unclean water coming out of the pot makes it unclean. Ah, but here was the point under contention. What if You have clean water in a clean pot, and you're pouring that water into an unclean pot. The question was, does the uncleanness of the pot you're pouring the water into travel up that unbroken stream of liquid and contaminate the clean pot that you're using to pour (laughs) Do you get a little bit of the idea of how they love? And these Essenes just ridicule the Pharisees. But I can't even remember which one of them took which side in the argument. They just ridicule them. What fools not to see it our way? The question about water flowing into a stream. You say, well, water in a stream is clean. But what if that water has flowed off a graveyard? You step on a grave... Have any contact with that which was dead, you became unclean, right? What about water that went across the graveyard and flowed into the creek? Is it clean or unclean? Now, that's what the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees just love to sit around and argue. Well, that's essentially what we've got going on here. The Pharisees are condemning the disciples of our Lord for doing what I've done many times growing up in Texas, get out there in the wheat field, rub that grain around in my hand, blow it away, and then put it in my mouth and chew it up. You've never done that. Turns into a delightful tasting little gum after a while when you chew on it long enough. They were going out into the grain fields and they were gleaning the sheaves, the heads of grain that had been left there from harvest and were eating them. Now, Christ, pulling up David's example, throws a little bit more light on that situation, I think, than we would otherwise have. David and his men were in desperate situations. They were famished. It would seem that Christ's disciples are in the same situation. This is not just a snack in the afternoon. They are eating this grain in order to survive, but they are doing it on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees say, Aha, got you now. Why are you letting your disciples glean this grain on the Sabbath day? you begin to get some insight into how the Pharisees thought about the ceremonial law and how they saw things like the Sabbath day. In many cases, Jesus accusing them of treating animals better on the Sabbath day than they treated people. The man with the withered hand that couldn't stretch it forth, and they're testing him, bringing this man before our Lord and saying, what you going to do? Christ, one of the few times, several times in Scripture, and it's notable when he does, becomes angry at these people. Why, if you had a dog, you'd treat him better than this. The woman who was bowed, what, for 18 years, bowed down, vexed with the devil. Christ says to them, you'd let an ox you go out to the stable. You'll let your cattle loose, an ox loose on the Sabbath day. But you won't loose this woman. So the fact that the Pharisees had taken the law and made it a cruel thing, and we see here that Christ is basically arguing that the necessities of human need, merciful conduct towards humanity, takes precedence over the ceremonial things of the law. And so it was that David is therefore, according to our Lord, doing that which is not lawful and yet not blamed, because the need of something to eat took precedence over the fact that this showbread was to be laid there in the tabernacle. Do you see the principle? Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. Let us go to the second incident in our text. What in the world are we to make of David's actions down there among the Philistines with King Achish of Gath? May I point out to you that till now, till now, David's faith, his faith in God, has always resulted in triumph. It's always resulted in success. It's always resulted in adulation, adoration, in the eyes of the people of Israel. Do you see that? Till this point, David's, you know, you say he's the rising young hero. Of Israel. Everybody thought well of David. He's the victor. He conquers. He goes out with our army and we win. But suddenly, and by the way, we just might be tempted to think because of that, that therefore if you have faith in God, that's the way it's going to be in your case. You're always going to win. Always have lots of money in the bank. Never have a problem. Never get sick. And by the way, there is a whole school of thought in modern Christianity that will tell you exactly that. What is going on in the charismatic movement in our day is nothing but the old dualism of the pagans. Where you've got a good God, we call him God, and a bad God, we call him the devil. And those two gods are at each other's throat. And when you have something bad happen to you, the bad God did it to you. The devil's doing it. It's the devil that makes you poor. It's the devil that makes you sick. It's the devil that gives you sorrow. God doesn't do things like that, they say. So when good things happen to you, when you got lots of money, when you're healthy, God's doing that. But if something bad happens to you, it's the devil doing that. My friend, the Scripture knows Nothing. Nothing of such an idea, of such a concept. Even when we find Satan actively involved, for instance, in Job's case, it is always the sovereignty of God that is allowing him to go this far and no further. God has him on a leash, and he can perform whatever he wishes as long as it fulfills the sovereign will of God. Do you understand? This is not some battle of titans. That's the pagan idea of the biblical cosmology or whatever we would say, the spiritual ram. You know, you propitiate this God and you you make him happy with you, so he'll go to fight with you against this God over here. That's the way the pagans thought. And it is creeping into modern Christianity today, not creeping, galloping into Christian thought in our day. May I point out to you that this is happening to David, and you can say, I mean, what's going on here? This is a guy sinking about as low as you can go. Right? I mean, to have to act like a crazy man. But may I point out that God is stripping David. So far, his faith in God has resulted in victory and praise and adulation. But now his faith in God is resulting in something else, being stripped of all of that, being stripped of his reputation, his pride. He's got to take his place there in Gath as a crazy man, a madman, a fool. Paul, in the book of Philippians, says that he knows how to be abased means to be humbled. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to be full and I know how to be hungry. I know how to abound and I know how to suffer need. David knows the one, but now God is beginning to teach him the other. He knows how to abound. Oh, he has handled himself admirably in those victories that he has won over the Philistines. But now he must learn the other side of the coin. To be a need, to be empty, he must learn how to be a base. Now, I quote a little poem. A friend up in Pennsylvania passed this along to me, very apropos to our discussion this morning. David picked the madman trick when the men from Akish neared and let a little spittle dribble down upon his beard. He babbled and he scrabbled till the vet with net appeared and he let a little spittle dribble down upon his beard. Could this wild and woolly weirdo be the warrior women cheered, and now allow a little spittle dribble through his beard. Though not too old, he showed his boldness when the giant cheered and slew ten feet of buzzard meat before he had a beard. Now, at the path away from Gath, Past post and gate he peered To now be freed He knew you need A truly drooly beard So with such wits His fit he feigned That he who reigned there feared To take the fake Who let some spittle dribble down Upon his beard My, my How low, how low does God's will demand that we go? How low must we sink? How low must we stoop? Pretty low. David was very highly exalted in the eyes of all Israel. Now God will abase him. Requiring oh stooping even to the point of faking insanity. You want to, that's what was going on outside. What was going on inside? Do you remember the Psalm David read earlier this morning? Did, did you see the title? Go back to Psalm thirty four. The inscription A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now, Abimelech, as I've described Wednesday night, was just a common word for king. That's what the Philistines call their kings. So he's talking about King Achish.
1: A psalm of David,
0: when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, Achish, who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord. At all times. You begin to understand what that word all encompasses here. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. God spared me. God saved my life down there at Gath. It's a lot easier on the flesh to be delivered by God when you swing that old sling and hit the giant in the forehead. When the instrument is your spit dribbling down your beard, it's not quite as exalting to the flesh, is it? And yet God saw this as a great and grand deliverance that God had wrought. Though he required him to stoop to this step, God saved him. Notice that this is the context of many of these verses that we love to read. This poor man cried unto the Lord, and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his trouble. The angel of the Lord encampeth around all those who fear him, and he delivered him towards the end of the psalm. The Lord is nigh unto those who are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants, and none of them who trust in Him shall be desolate. The same God, in other words, in the eyes of David, the same God who had delivered Him from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, from the giant Goliath, now was delivering Him from King Achish and the Philistines. Doing it in a um, way that was not quite as pleasant to the flesh, but nevertheless, it was God saving him. Think about that. Paul says, "I know how to be abound. I know how to abound. I know how to handle that." Most of us think we can handle that. I know how to handle being full. we were talking about the love of money Tuesday morning at Bible study, and I said, "You know, our problem is is that." I think I can handle success, riches. I don't think you can. But I could. Obviously not, because God hadn't seen fit to bring it my way. <laughs> do you understand? We, it is why, for instance, success in what you do. Unbroken prosperity, said the Puritans, is one of the most severe trials a man can face in the Christian life. Why? Because he fears it so little. He's not scared of that. But notice Paul says, God has taught me. Taught me how to abound. David learned a little of that. David kept himself. I, I'm, I'm amazed at it. When, when Saul offers him his daughter as his wife, David's who am I? That I could be the son's The king's son-in-law. But now David has to learn the other side. Some of you are having to learn the other side. It's not pleasant to the flesh. These are not happy days. But God is far more concerned about your holiness than he is your happiness. I look back to this psalm of David. Several things caught my attention. But there is another Psalm, Psalm fifty four, where he states again the same heading that it happened at this particular time. But <coughs> excuse me. The idea is, is that David just didn't want deliverance for his body. He wanted deliverance for his feet. He says at one point, don't let my feet fall. Do you, do you understand what that means? Don't let me dishonor the God in whose name I walk, live my life. It's not just my body that I want deliverance for. That seems to be all that's on the mind of many folks today. Oh, if I can just get healing for my body, pamper my body, riches, wealth, They have an easy time, pleasurable time in the body. David was concerned about a little more than that. He looks a lot like his Lord, David's son, yet David's Lord, does he not? Do you not find traces? We'll talk more about this next time. Do you not find glimpses of the life of Christ in the life of David? Is it just an accident that so many Scriptures in the New Testament applied to Christ are drawn right out of David's writings. He keepeth all his bones, verse 20. Not one of them is broken. Who's that applied to in the New Testament? To Christ by the Apostle John. Over and over, the New Testament writers pull right out of David's experience and David's life and David's writings things and apply them directly to David's greater son. Because if you want to see someone stoop, you want to ask how low can he go, don't look at David. Look at he who, though he were God, thought it robbery, not robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And was found in the likeness of man. Man, the creature whom he, according to the Scripture, had created. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself. Oh, if he's going to be a man, he'll be the greatest man. Man, he'll rule this show. He'll sit up there in the palace on his throne, dressed in the finery, the purple robes, sitting in the luxury. No. Being found in passion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. How low can he go? And then, let me close. I intended to just bring you a little sermonette this morning since so many of our folks were gone. didn't want to get too far ahead of them. But there is the old saying that sermonettes produce Christianettes. And plus, I don't have it in me. You know my nature. Let's close with just thinking about the first event, the showbread there at the tabernacle. It is always man's tendency to take the ceremonial and to assign it an importance that's all out of proportion to its actual value or its meaning. Unless you think this was limited just to the Jews in the Old Testament time or at the time of Christ, let me point out the many, many churches in our day that about all that's left is a dead liturgical ceremony. You know, let's, march, let's put on our robes, let's march in, let's take some candles. Why is it everybody wants to burn candles? You know, everybody, you know, that's just a holy thing to do. Let's burn candles. Let's march in. Let's have some candles. Let's, let's spray some incense around. Let's, let's act religious. That's not just limited to that Old Testament age, the age of type and shadow when these things were instructive of that age that was coming. It is man's tendency in our day to think let's go through the motions. Let's act religious. Let's put on our religious garb and go to church. Let's go play church for a little while. And then we'll leave these walls and go out here and live like we please. Let's go give our two cents to God and then go our merry way. We only have two such ceremonies. We call them ordinances in the New Testament. Baptism and the Lord's table. And even with those two, we find the tendency is to take the symbol And to try to put some spiritual reality into fulfilling the symbol. I believe in baptism. But my friend, we can baptize you to the point we can't even get you to drip dry. And you will not be one whit closer to God than when we started if there is not the reality of grace in your heart. You can partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday, every day, as often as you wish. You will not find any merit one went closer to God, you'll just be a whole lot more tired of grape juice and crackers when it's all over. Do you understand what I'm saying? That unless grace accompanies this, unless there is the reality in your heart, the sign becomes a mockery. Empty, devoid of meaning. I know not. Your heart, I wish I could analyze you. They take you to the hospital, and hook you up to the machines, and they can tell you just about everything's going on in your heart. My friend, when it comes to that spiritual thing we call the heart, we've got no EKGs, we've got no monitors that we can apply except the criteria of the Word of God. What is the state of your heart today? Oh, I think baptism is important. I think observing the Lord's table is important. But my friend, there's something far taking precedence over all of that. It is, do you know the reality of Christ in your heart? Is this thing real to you? Does it pervade your life? Does it affect your conduct when you leave these walls? Is it the sphere in which you walk and breathe and think? Is it the mind of Christ that pervades your mind? Is it the way He lives that becomes your goal in life? Can you say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Oh, I think sometimes we'd much prefer to die for Christ than to live for Him. I think in some ways it's a lot easier. Is Christ truly the Lord of your life—is He all in all to you, or do you just come and put on the religious garbs? You know, I meant to say this this morning. I there's some things about our church that I like. Some things drive me nuts. I'm sure it's the same with you. I'm this, our laid backness is one of those things I like, and one of those things that drives me nuts. <clears throat> Sometimes we get so laid back we're horizontal, I think. But I long, I hope that it never comes to the day that for you to come to this assembly means that you've got to put on outward garment an outward expression on your face. That, in other words, that you've got to put on some hypocritical mask in order to come here. I don't want to see that. I don't think anybody here wants to see that. I praise God that I believe when I look out on this congregation, I see real people. Real people with real problems. And they're really in life. They're down here where the rubber meets the roads and they're seeking help and grace from their Savior. I hope that's the way it remains. Oh, there's some things, I know we ought to have some order and decency about how we do things. The Scripture teaches us that. But oh, when it comes down to the fact that I've got to look a certain way, I've got to put on a certain garb, I've got to walk a certain way, I've got to have that holy walk, you know, that holy talk. Oh, my friend, let's be done with it. We're just plain old common folks. We're sinners in need of grace. And what binds our hearts together is the fact that we found a savior, a savior who's able to give us grace, To free us from sin, to save us from sin, a savior who is able to change us and make us what we're into something that we. My, when you look around. I don't. I hadn't known you folks much more in my time here, but from the stories I hear about some of your lives when you were growing up. We wouldn't know you today, you new creatures. Don't even look like you used to look. Something's changed. That's what Christ is able to do. That's what we rejoice in. Not how wonderful we are, but in how wonderful our Lord is. Not in how sufficient we are, but how sufficient He is. Not in how able we are, but how able He is. That's what we've come together to do, to exalt the name of our Savior, to tell a man that what you need is to put your trust, your hope, your faith, your confidence in that Savior. No matter what it costs you, no matter what it is that God brings your way, whether it's riches or poverty, whether it's health or sickness, that in every circumstance you can say His grace is sufficient. I have found Him able and capable to meet my needs through God's grace in Christ Jesus. May that be our testimony. I don't know. Some of you here today may not have the foggiest idea of what I'm talking about. I may be speaking in, in tongues. Nobody here to interpret you may not have the foggiest notion what any of this means. All oh, that God might open your heart, might shine the light of His truth and of His Word in the dark recesses of your heart, that He might snatch you out of the kingdom of Satan and translate you into the kingdom of His dear Son. As much as we plead with you to come to Christ, to turn away from self, and to abandon your soul's hope, in the sufficiency of Jesus, I know from my own experience, unless God speaks, unless God does a work, that's not going to happen. Oh, that God might come down. That God might sweep over your soul. then you won't need some preacher to pat you on the back and say, yeah, I think you're probably saved. You'll come to me and you'll say, preacher, let me tell you, what God has done for me. It would be real. Let's pray. Father, help us to bless our God at all times. When we're on top of the mountain, victorious, triumphing, and when we're in the dumps, with spittle dribbling down our beard. Lord, teach us at all times to trust in Thee, to abandon ourselves, our souls, into Your hands, trusting our God that He is able and sufficient for our needs. That whether it be from death or in death, You are able to deliver, whether it costs us much or little, whether, Father, you say to us, as Christ said to Peter, that by this death you will glorify God, or whether you will say as to John, if I will, he tarry till I come. Whatever is our lot, what our Christ has chosen for us, what the road, the path that we must walk, whatever it is, may we bow. May we cling to Thee. May we honor You. Let us learn from David and from David's greater son. May we learn what it is to truly believe and trust in our God. May we not deny the faith that we say we have by the way we conduct our lives in this world. Thank You for Your Word. Bless the poor, bumbling, stumbling words of this preacher. May you empower your word to speak to the hearts of those present today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.